the hornets were like hanging out on the trees, just kind of going around hawking bees and grabbing bees just as they're like flying in to land at the hive. We're at least fortunate that I think our local beekeepers have semi-automatic weapons still that they could use right. to, uh, to shoot That's them. That's probably about the right kind of size and shape of artillery you need, I think. For some of they really are. <laughs> in this episode, I interviewed Dr. Brent Sinclair from the University of Western Ontario. That's located in London, Ontario, in Canada. He's currently a research scientist there, has over 190 research items published, 31,172 reads of his works, and 6,652 citations of his work. He is very well known for his cold tolerance work and good sense of humor. He was actually one of my initial inspirations to go into the sciences and study uh, insects. So without further ado, here it is, my interview with Dr. Brent Sinclair. Hey, how are you doing? Tell me it's my best side. Good, good. Thinking about our of course. I'm sorry that I've, uh, it looks like I've caught you in the field right now. Well, I've been, I've, I've been loving the virtual background. So I've been trying to like <laughs> zoom from a different location for every, every, every day, which was kind of fun at first, but like, you know, it's starting to be like, oh, I've been doing this for eight weeks now. <laughs> now it's just like added pressure to my day, you know? <laughs> like, shoot, I need to pick another location before this next meeting. Alyssa, you did your PhD at University of Otago, saying it's a very, it seems like a very uh, traditional, rich uh, university there. Yeah, so it's, I think it's the oldest university in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Um, and it's, it's a small town. And well, so Dunedin, were, Dunedin got rich because there was a gold rush in New Zealand in the 1860s, 1870s. And Dunedin got rich, not because any like sizable amount of gold was ever found, but like all, all good gold mining things, they got rich out of being like, providing the merchant um, sort of stuff to go with the gold rush. So similar to like San Francisco, right? Um, uh, okay. And um, so they, they have this like university, you know, and it's got like big old buildings and so forth and such like, and there's lots of like big old houses from that era through the city as well. And, but the other, the other cool thing about Dunedin, which you don't get in many places is like, it's, it's a long way South for the Southern hemisphere. So it's at 47 degrees South. So it's, quite a long way south and okay. it's um and it's got like just all of this wildlife all around so it's built out on on kind of a peninsula there's uh, there's the world's only mainland albatross colony um Ooh. like on that peninsula there's oh, you know, so we, cool. we had like so as undergrads like you know for our like conservation biology or conservation ecology third year class you know we'd have like field trips out to see you know albatross and penguins and seals and you know and wow. we'll, we'll, like, go and, and handle them you know um <laughs> oh that's of, pretty nice yeah yeah and they were like you know so as an undergrad you know you could just there were plenty of people doing research so you know i would be able to volunteer and just go out and you know ban seabirds or whatever and you know just like on the weekend or sometimes even just on like you know evenings or afternoons during the week so wow. it's a really cool place to kind of be immersed in wildlife yeah, and, and there you did your PhD studying ecology and physiology of alpine and Antarctic arthropods. And why, I mean, first off, you know, what is alpine when we're talking about that? And why was that interesting? In, in New Zealand, because it's a long way south and all those things. So the alpine zone starts at kind of about 1,300 meters above sea level. 
And so there were actually like, there was actually a, a location called the Rock and Pillar Range, which is two hours drive from the department in a four wheel drive where you could actually drive up into the Alpine zone. And oh, wow. so there you, it looks, it, it looks like, it looks like Alpine tundra. It looks like Arctic tundra. So short little things, mostly flightless um, insects, really kind of like actual genuine Alpine conditions and, you know, cold and snowy and brutal during the, um, during the winter. Okay. And then, so why was it interesting to study that? What was your particular uh, interest? I moved from Auckland to Otago in the start of my third year because I wanted to work on kind of, I wanted to do whole organism stuff. Right. So I wanted okay. to um, study like, you know, behavior and things like that. And I'd, I'd done a field trip to an Island where we had like wandered around in the rain, you know, measuring bird behavior. And I was like, this is great. And then <laughs> after a while, it turned out that actually what was great was the, the bit where you're out wandering around in the rain more, more so than the, um, cause I grew up in like the suburbs and didn't really do any hiking or anything like that. So it was sort of the wandering around in the rain more than the bird behavior that turned out to be. be most interesting. <laughs> and um, so I knew that I wanted to work on, I wanted to do stuff that was sort of field related and in interesting places. Yeah. And I knew that um, I was interested in insects. I'd had a summer job where I'd been out to a, a subtropical Island helping to measure vegetation communities and there were all these, because there were, there were relatively few predators, like introduced predators there, there were all these like amazing things. These like giant wetter, which are the heaviest insects in the world. And yeah, uh, like neat. Cool um, giraffe beetles. So they're weevil, well, they're related to weevils. Okay. Um, and they've got these like super long, super, super long weird noses and things. And they're in the family Brentidae. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Did you name them Brentidae? <laughs> oh, I always claim that I'm named after <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, and so I, and I thought that I might want to work on insects, but we didn't really have ins many insecty people. And in my third year of undergrad, I was doing this course called Environmental Physiology, Zoology three one three. Still remember it. It's still called Zoology three one three. Three amazing. Wow. <laughs> um, anyway, and it had this um, these guest lectures from this guy that was visiting the department on sabbatical, a guy called Bill Block, who worked at the time at the British Antarctic Survey. And he gave these two lectures on insect cold tolerance strategies. So insects that could survive freezing and insects that avoided freezing. And I was like, that uh -huh. is what I want to do. And I've basically been doing it ever since. I was able to go and sign up into the lab and sign up for an honors project with them and got to go into the, the mountains a couple of times with, with Bill. And, um, and there was another guy visiting as well, Hans Ramlov, who's now a professor at um, Roskilde University in Denmark. I started working on these abundant Alpine cockroaches um, with the, the, the with the resplendent name of Salatoblata cuncumaculata. Oh, and beautiful name! Yeah, beautiful rolls name. off the tongue. Yep, exactly. That would be in the exam. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they can survive freezing. You cool them down, and they freeze solid and thaw out again and survive. And I was like, "This is amazing!" And I want to know more about this. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the where the Alpine stuff came in. And then the Antarctic stuff and staying for a PhD really came about kind of simultaneously. So when you grow up in New Zealand, because it was the, it's the stopping off point for a lot of Antarctic research, including the US Antarctic program. Um, but also it was the stopping off point for, you know, for Scott and Shackleton and all those people when they were going to, to the Antarctic. So Antarctica kind of looms large in, 
the psychology of the nation, if you like. Huh, and so, okay. you know, so I was like, how do I get to Antarctica? And, um, <laughs> and my, my, you know, to be PhD advisor, David Wharton did research on Antarctic nematodes. And he's like, well, we just basically write an application to go. And, you know, if you wanted to stay and do a PhD, you could do that. And I'm like, sign me up. Wow. So, um, so basically like essentially like, you know, my main motivation was that here was an opportunity to go to Antarctica, which is a perfectly reasonable reason to stay somewhere <laughs> and do a PhD. Do a PhD. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's kind of funny because, you know, the last person I spoke to, so Dr. Jenny Corey, she also started by uh, studying bird behavior. Okay. Uh, and then her path to entomology was also rather serendipitous, you know, it was just kind of following interest after interest uh, and, and, and led in that same path. And I think with you, it, it seems kind of like similar, you know, it wasn't... Yep. Uh, when you were born, you weren't like, I want to be an entomologist. It was kind of the opportunities arose uh, and you just kept kind of pursuing them. Yeah, I think there's kind of, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, you know, people that think there's two kinds of people and people that don't. No, I think there's, <laughs> I think there's sort of three kinds of entomologists. There's the, the people that were like keeping bugs under their beds and had a, a, a butterfly collection at the age of four and, you know, right. and that was always what they were going to do. And there's, there's people like me that kind of got into it fairly early on because it was like, wow, these are cool. And, you know, sort of for intellectual reasons, there's neat things to do and they're neat animals. And there's people that I think just kind of fall into it because, you know, they're looking for a research project and they want to study behavior or heat shock proteins or, you know, or human disease or whatever. And then one day look back and discover that they, that all they do now is work on locusts or something. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's sort of those three-ish categories. And I can see that even with the people in, in my lab, you know, mm. there's, there's people that will are just like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. Or this is always what I wanted to do. And people yeah. that are like, well, actually, like I see myself as a something else and this just is a system to do it in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then you went on, uh, after your PhD to space lab where you did a postdoc, uh, this yep. is in Stellenbosch university in South Africa. Yep. And yep. that's, so I mean, spatial physiological and conservation ecology. Yeah. Oh, it's not inter and not interstellar travel. It's uh, <laughs> terrible false advertising. <laughs> yeah. You're like, like, wait, what am I doing here? <laughs> I know I didn't get launched on a single rocket the whole time. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Now, fortunately, there are some really neat, it looks like mountain ranges right behind the university. Yeah. So this was, again, a bit of an accident. So at the time, and this is like one of these things that looking back, like in a different world, I would have interacted with a very different set of people. So because of David's interests and the people that I was exposed to, the world that I, the intellectual world I interacted with as a um as a grad student was really um, focused on kind of insect environmental physiology and specifically kind of Antarctic stuff. So the meetings I went to tended to be Antarctic meetings with other people that did Antarctic research and things like that. And, you know, and, I, and whereas with my students, I tend to take them to, to SICBI or to Canadian Society of Zoologists or to things that are, are, have a very different emphasis. Yeah. So those were the people I knew. And so Stephen Chown was like kind of, and still is like just an absolute global leader in that, just that sort of world, right? Invasive mm -hmm. species, um, insect, environmental physiology, polar biology of all stripes. And so 
he was just a, a clearly obvious person to go and work with. Yeah. And at the time that we kind of arranged all this, he um, was based at the University of Pretoria, um, which is just near Johannesburg. And he actually moved to Stellenbosch um, like a week before I arrived for my post. So it was just like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to Stellenbosch. Yeah. So, um, so you weren't planning, it wasn't, you were originally not going to be in Stellenbosch. No, not at all. Not at all. And it was just, oh was just how gosh. it worked out, right? So, yeah. so we had kind of the main field sites I had, I had one in um, the Cedarburg, which is this mountain range north of, um, in the northern part of the Western Cape or north okay. of Cape Town and stuff. So it gets cold at night. So, you know, even in, in kind of October, which is like late spring, uh, we were up there um, at kind of 2,000 meters and there was ice on everything and animals were freezing, oh my gosh. freezing and stuff, which was just really cool. Oh, and these neat. areas are amazing because the Karoo Desert has such clear skies and it's at high elevation that they, you know, that's where the South African Large Telescope is based. So you, oh, know, you wow. can imagine being up on this mountain range at 2,000 meters. We were staying in this like, I'll call it a hut. It was really kind of just a shack. Like it didn't even have a door. Or <laughs> um, and, you know, and you, you could get up in the night and you could look and you could look down to the horizon and there was just like the best stars uh, I've ever seen right down to the horizon. Just stunning. Oh, and, wow. Um, so, yeah, so we worked on these amazing cockroaches there, these like big cockroaches um, and these cool um, beetles of various sorts. Um, and then we looked at some of the same cockroaches in the Karoo Desert, where it also gets very cold at night, down, and, and also in the Drakensberg Mountains and um, Lesotho, or on the Lesotho South Africa border on the eastern side of the, the continent. Okay. Um, and that, that had all sorts of interesting things as well, because I could fly across to Durban and drive up there, but I had all sorts of interesting things crossing the border and you know i broke four-wheel drive vehicles and had to hang out with at the, <laughs> with the police at the border border station for a day and, and things like that um i, I guess that all uh, kind of helped give you the ability to navigate those types of countries and scenarios now i mean you're not intimidated i guess if you go there yeah well it's it's interesting because i don't do that very much now for my research actually the other thing i did from south africa which is possibly actually the kind of the here's the the point where I realized how challenging this was. I did a couple of trips back to the Antarctic. So I spent, um, did two trips to Marion Island, which is mm-hmm. um, 2,000 miles south of Madagascar, I guess, is the best way to find it. It's, it's like in the middle of the ocean, right? It's I mean, it's the, just... Yeah, it's, I think, slightly less isolated than Hawaii, but otherwise kind of, you know, as isolated. And it has a population when they're doing the kind of the takeover, when the ship visits once a year for a month or so, it has a population of about 80. <laughs> and then the rest of the time it has a population of like 12. I remember, I mean, I was, I almost went there for my master's. I would have been there for about a year. Yeah. I remember we had discussed that yes. and I was, I was thinking, you know, could I live on an Island for a year with seven other people? You know, that was one of the things I had to think yeah. through and process. And yeah, I was like, that's well, no, knowing you, Irfan, I think you totally could. I think, you I, th- I, think I could. I mean, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. So, you know, what was... so that was, that was interesting. So that was in this, it was the last days of the old research station there. It's now been replaced with a shiny new one. Oh, um, nice. But, um, Essentially, that was nice because there was a pretty well-equipped lab. So we could go there and, and there's only 
50 species of insects on the island or something. So you could kind of, and so Stephen wow. Chan had been working there since he was a whippersnapper, since he was like a master's student, maybe even before that. Wow. And so, oh, cool. you know, you could just kind of say like, well, Stephen, I'm thinking about doing an experiment of something that does this and this. And, you know, what do you think? And he'd be like, oh, like at this time of year, there's this species of weevil. You go to rocks with that species of lichen and, you know, and on a wet day, you'll be able to pick them off with forceps or something like that. You know, it was just wow. Amazing. He like fully understood the ecosystem oh, there and basically like, oh. and it was just great. And yeah. So that was super fun, super hard work. You know, that was like 24 seven, like, cause you've only, you're only there for a short period of time. So we'd have like all these experiments set up and, and know, knock it all out constantly hangry and, you know, generally just kind of like <laughs> challenged. And, and, um, you know, and the second time I went down there, I d- designed this colossal experiment to like do this repeated freezing experiment on, on caterpillars and what we hadn't quite, figured out what I hadn't quite factored in was that it took me almost 12 hours just to set up the experiment for these oh, things that were supposed to be frozen every day. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> no. so every day it was like, okay, 12 hours of kind of like crazy doing this, which is, which is kind of crazy. But Oh um, gosh. Yeah. So there were all sorts of things like that. And I, I, I think you learn. And, and then the other trip that we did, so myself and three others, so John Tablanche, who's now a professor at University of Stellenbosch, uh, Matt Scott, who is now a, a researcher at um, Scions, and um, Jaco Klock, who's now a researcher at um, Sable Systems in, in Las Vegas. We, were, we did some work in Antarctica for, four, or for three and a bit months um, in this... Um, place called Cape Hallett, which is sort of quite well-traveled now because there's a, a, they had a, a sort of a semi-permanent research presence there for a few years and things. But at the time that we were there, we'd, we spent the longest there that anyone had since the 60s, I think. Oh, and, wow. Um, so there were just four of us living in tents doing physiology <laughs> with generators. Um, oh, my gosh. And that was challenging on all sorts of, on all sorts of fronts. You know, uh, generators are loud generators stopped working oh no and um and our radio stopped working after about six weeks so we couldn't really communicate with anybody so we're just kind of checking dates off on the calendar and kind of you know on the day that it seemed like a ship was supposed to show up we kind of (laughs) waited to see if a ship showed up so (laughs) so, it's kind of fun because that kind of makes you very uh, adaptable to uh you know things that are out of your hands things that are out of control yeah yeah, I don't know if it's made me personally any more adaptable. You know, I still freak out when I'm, you know, I'm still a control freak and I still freak out when I'm not in control of stuff. But I think that it makes has made me very scientifically adaptable. Um, and it's been quite interesting looking at that with this pandemic, with lots of people taking stuff home and maybe thinking about trying to do their science at home and stuff. And, yeah. um, and it's been a good thing to draw from. So... Um, I co-supervise a master's student in New Zealand mm-hmm. and we just sent a bunch of equipment to her and she kind of took that home and all the animals. And I'm like, okay, so this is actually exactly the same as being stuck in a tent in Antarctica, except that you can, you know, except that you can go to the grocery store. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so it's been quite useful for kind of like thinking through some of those things and, and, and in general, like a, adapting to the things that you get. So I still do occasionally do get to do field work in the Arctic and, and those are skills that we retain, although very much try to do it 
right now trying not to do it based out of tents with generators and things just because the you always get crappier data. And then, so then you went to go to, uh, you did your postdoc studying stress genomics in the University of Nevada. And yep. there you studied Drosophila. In Las Vegas. Just, in Las Vegas. The, the last place in the world I ever thought I'd live. <laughs> I'm studying Drosophila, the last insect, like Drosophila melanogaster, the last insect in the world I ever thought I'd work on. You know, fruit flies. That's, that's funny. Yeah. And then you're studying cryopreservation uh, of fruit flies. When I was first in, in Stellenbosch, like early on, I got an interview for a faculty position. So I was like, this is sweet. I'm going to be able to get a faculty position after I finish this postdoc. You know, no problems at all. It'll be great. And so then the next year I applied for like all the faculty positions yeah. and got precisely no, I think precisely no interviews. And oh, wow. Like, Holy crap. What do I do? Right. Because, you know, I'm living in a country that you know, my visa is about to expire. There's no job back for me, for me back in New Zealand. Um, and like, what do I do? So I emailed a bunch of people and someone was like, well, you know, um, Steve Roberts has a bunch of money available right now. He was at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas at the time. And it was sort of the golden, just before the, the economic collapse when Vegas and Nevada had just all this money. And so he had money as part of his kind of, as part of a kind of a genomics core facility to hire a postdoc. So I kind of showed up and knew nothing about any of these things <laughs> and learned from him and from um, another faculty member who moved there just after I arrived, um, Alan Gibbs, how to wrangle flies about fly environmental physiology and that sort of thing. And did some experiments on cold. And as I was doing this, I got interested in, um, so I'd always been interested in evolutionary physiology, but, okay. um, there was, there's this, you know, basically all fly people have worm envy. They're all envious of, of C. elegans because you can freeze C. elegans. You can basically like get into the right life stage, pop in some glycerol and chuck it in the freezer and go on vacation. Whereas, wow. whereas with Drosophila, you have to keep kind of, you know, managing the, the stocks. So the everyone, colonies, wants yeah. to, everyone wants to have those, like those famous, you know, sea elegans vacations. I don't know. <laughs> and that's your sea um, <laughs> exactly. elegans vacations and that's nematodes, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So anyway, and so, um, so we wrote a grant to figure out if there were going to be any um, Drosophila species that were freeze tolerant. And then, you know, and the, the argument would be that either you figure out how they do it and make melanogaster do it, um, which actually, like, down the line, my colleague Vlad Koschel has sort of figured out how to do. Whoa. Um, but, um, you know, but also, like, you know, maybe there's just a species that we should be using as a model instead, right? Which brings us to, you know, afterwards, so then you, you become uh, a faculty at University of Western Ontario since Six. August of 2006. Yep. So that was, I guess, actually not too long after I started my undergraduate there. I know you were there like pretty close to the beginning. So, yeah. you know, so I think um, many of the people, you know, so I think that, um, so Heath McMillan, I think joined my lab as a volunteer, like two months after I started. Whoa. Oh, neat. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Yeah. So that was still quite early days. Yeah. Um, and he's a faculty, he's a faculty now. Where is he? Carlton University. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, so and, and I moved to Canada and um, yeah, and it's been great ever since. About the same time that I arrived in Canada, and this is completely coincidental, I promise, Emerald Ashborer turned up in London, Ontario. Oh, and, 
and that's so, and, and so that's a that's a devastating boar pest. Anyone who's you know up in the Northeast is very familiar. We just got our first case of emerald ash borer confirmed probably about three or four months ago yep. down here in Texas. We don't have a yep. whole lot of ash, yep. but um, I mean it's a so, devastating yeah. pest of all ash. Yeah, so sorry, exactly. go ahead. So you know, insert like insert you know standard newspaper headlines of kiss your ass <laughs> goodbye and so forth, right? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so. I'd been kind of in touch with a guy, Peter de Groot, at the Canadian Forest Service and just kind of said, hey, you know, I'd like to do applied research, but I'm not a real entomologist. I don't even really know where to start. But it seems like, you know, given that I work on cold and, <laughs> you know, and there's always invasive species coming, like, you know, an obvious question is, will this thing survive in Canada? And he was like, oh, well, you know, if I hear of anything, I'll let you know. Um, and so then, of course, Emerald ash borer comes through and it was an obvious thing to kind of, you know, to sink our teeth into. It was in the city. Um, at the time, we didn't know how far it was spreading and how far it had spread already. Yeah. So when I first joined this thing, you know, we'd go to like meetings that expl explicitly didn't have emerald ash borer written on the side of the conference room. You had to sign a secrecy agreement when you went in, but less people <laughs> knew that, you know, where things were. And, um, you know, and then, of course, it turned out that it was everywhere and had been for a decade. Um, <laughs> and then, and that sort of led to, the, you know, now almost half the work we do in the lab is applied in one way or another, which is kind of, hmm. you know, insert new pest here. You know, will it survive in Canada? And we've worked on emerald ash borer. We've worked on spotted wing drosophila, drosophila suzukii. We've worked on... Um, We've, we've worked on brown marmorated stink bug. We're, we're working on, um, on um, Asian longhorn beetle. Um, you know, and it's just kind of like one nasty after another, you know. And yeah. you know, in the news today, the next thing that I'm going to do is sit down and edit like a little press release about these, like, you know, the, the Asian hornets that are suddenly in the news as well. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was going to say, you know, a giant. You're going to you're going to try tackling the giant hornet next. <laughs> you know, um, so I had a postdoc who visited for a year from China, and we went out to visit him, and and he's in like a, a bee science college, huh. right, in, in Fuzhou in, in southeastern China, and um, and I saw these hornets, and they're just oh, amazing wow. because they're colossal, right? They're like hummingbirds. Um, Gosh. <laughs> and and I and we saw them and what they what they were doing was they just kind of hang out. So this these were like um, you know beehives. So they try to have a hole that is too small to, that excludes the hornet from getting in, right? Oh, okay. But the hornets were like hanging out on the trees, just kind of going around hawking bees and grabbing bees, just as they're like flying in to land at the hive, and then kind of going off and like chewing oh their heads off up, up the tree, um, <laughs> which was just amazing. Unfortunately, wow. it wasn't. It was the wrong time of year to see the the um, Asian honeybees, like the Serrano, where they do this thing where they like surround them in a ball and then heat them up and kill them and cook them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I was very disappointed not to see that, but yeah. Oh, that would have been really neat. Yeah, I understand. I, I don't know that uh, that honeybee is very common here in North America. It's not. So it seems like the the trade offs are because I mean, because Xinjiang does quite a lot of work on on this Asian honeybee. Okay. And it seems like the, the issues are that it's, it's much more resistant to diseases and stuff. Like, I think many of which come from, <laughs> come from Apis serrana to Apis mellifera, right? Or come from, <laughs> from Asia. But yeah. um, it's not as productive. And I think it's okay. like the management is a little bit trickier. Okay. Um, and they're, they're, 
they're definitely they're, they definitely look different. We have, we would see them and we see the wild colonies as well in the rocks and stuff when we're out hiking and things. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting to see kind of how that unfolds if if they actually you know the giant hornet actually establishes here, and yeah. what that means for a lot of our beekeepers. <laughs> well, it's certainly another thing to to worry about, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've come across Gard Otis at, at Guelph, but he was doing no. some work in um, he was doing some work in um, in Southeast Asia, I think, in Indonesia or Thailand on um, on these. Um, on these giant hornets and the way that the local beekeepers kind of deal with them. It's kind of cool. Wow. See, I'd imagine, see, we're, we're at least fortunate that I think our local beekeepers have semi-automatic weapons still that they could use right. to, uh, to shoot That's them. That's probably about the right kind of size and shape of artillery you need, I think. For some of them. They really <laughs> <are>. <laughs> uh, so your lab now focuses on understanding the impacts of temperature extremes, high and low on insect yep. biology ecosystems yep. and evolution. So why, you know, in general, uh, like an elevator talk, you know, what, why is that important? Okay. So insects are ectotherms. So when it's cold, they cool down and slow down and run the risk of freezing when it's below zero. Um, yet we find them everywhere it's cold. So how do we reconcile these two things? If your toes freeze, you don't enjoy that very much. <laughs> Some of these things can survive freezing completely. Um, so from an applied perspective, the question really is, will these things survive in Canada or where in Canada will they survive? Um, from a, a basic science perspective, there's just the general question, like how do they thrive in these places? What are the strategies? How do they evolve? But also there's a kind of a mechanisms kind of question, which is how do they deal with these really, really kind of, um, robust stresses of being frozen or thawed or having so emerald ash borer for example has four molar glycerol in its in its blood during the winter and that's like that's too viscous to pipette so how do they wow. deal with these super high concentrations of stuff um so there's always like questions about how biochemistry is working how physiology metabolism is working how physiology is working and in, in, at low temperatures and you know, and some of it comes back to this question with the the flies, right? Is like, why can I freeze? You know, why can I freeze goldenrod gall flies kind of any day of the week during the winter and have them survive, but I can't freeze Drosophila when I want to go on vacation? <laughs> right, and so that I mean that raises a very interesting question, and you know, I think we see a lot in uh, science fiction movies where they will use. Uh, freezing or car preservation for things like space travel. You know, yep. if, uh, you need to travel 300, you know, light years, you can just freeze the people and thaw them out when they're ready. Yep. And now it seems like the work that you're doing, however, uh, you know, based on that, are we going to be relying on fruit flies for future space exploration? Do you think they're going to be the best space explorers? Cockroaches, I think. <laughs> oh, cockroaches? Okay, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they, the they can take the radiation as well, I guess, right? Take the radiation, you know, you can store them. You know, they're, they're pretty flat, so you can basically like stack them. Um, <laughs> you know, not, not fussy eaters. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I would expect like very, you know, wide, flat interstellar spacecraft <laughs> very aerodynamic yeah very aerodynamic yeah, yeah. it looked like a like a flying space saucer actually we we're probably already being visited uh, occasionally by yeah. cockroach space travelers yeah. yeah those are just like big multi-story cockroach <laughs> where you know what's the gap between now like uh being able to uh, uh, freeze an insect to being able to cryopreserve a human 
Well, I think the first thing that we should say is we can't yet take an insect, you know, Joe insect off the street and freeze it, right? There's only some species that can survive it. Even mm-hmm. with Drosophila, with my colleague um, Vlad's work, it's really kind of hit and miss and it's not as effective as they, they might have hoped. And so they did this by, by feeding them massive quantities of the free amino acid proline. Okay. So we don't, you know, and right down to basic things. So for example, you know, we take these free tolerant insects, we freeze them, we thaw them out and they still metabolize, right? But even mm-hmm. like an isolated mitochondrion, you can't freeze an isolated mammalian mitochondrion and thaw it out and have it work. Huh. Um, so we're a long way from that. And I would, so, so the argument, you know, my colleagues that work on hibernation on mammalian hibernation are like, Oh, we're going to figure this out, which is also good, but they're sort of in the same situation, really. They can't, they can study animals that can hibernate. Yeah. Um, but they can't take an animal that can't hibernate and make it hibernate make based on it. all the things they knew. So that's, um, and that I guess brings us into the, the kind of the, the paper, which we're probably not going to have time to discuss that we were going to talk about, <laughs> but, but a direction that the, the lab is taking, which is that we're working on this, this cricket, Grillus Belitis, the Springfield cricket. So it's a standard black field cricket that you hear calling, guess what, in the spring. Um, and they overwinter as latent star nymphs, so basically like mini crickets, and they can survive freezing. And so what I, where I'm sort of focusing a lot of the NSERC related stuff right now is kind of like, let's like actually systematically explore this. Let's figure out what is it that makes this cricket survive freezing and this other one not survive freezing. Mm-hmm. The advantages for being able to do this is we can rear them in numbers in the lab. We can make them freeze tolerant. So we can take a, take two crickets. You know, this one is freeze tolerant. Her sister is not. Um, and they're big enough that we can kind of get at individual tissues and individual cells and things like that. So it's relatively easy to dissect them and say, rather than say grinding up a whole animal and measuring its transcriptome, we can study a specific tissue or a specific um, cell type within a tissue. Um, disadvantages, they're still a bit slow. You know, they take a few weeks to acclimate. They take a few weeks to grow and things. But I think that it's really a, a model system that we can really kind of make some progress with. So, you know, so, and where we're at at the moment is that we can manipulate, for example, their hemolymph, their blood composition. We can, we have, we're working on a protocol for RNAi knockdown of genes that we're interested in. Oh, down, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So those sorts of things are coming about. Every now and then, lots of people want to work on CRISPR, right? So people will call up and say, like, I want to work on CRISPR on your things. And, and I, I maintain that we're, we're a decade or maybe a generation away from knowing what CRISPR we want to do in these animals. Yeah. Um, okay. But we still have quite know, a bit to learn about the, the functions of different genes and, and what you'd want to actually splice ab- in or splice out. Absolutely. And, and you know, what's yeah. apparent. So for example, we can take some of these standard cryoprotectants, glycerol and trailose and proline and, and inject them into the animals and make them more freeze tolerant if they're already freeze tolerant. This was work done by Yantina Toxopeus, who is a PhD student in my lab. She's actually about to start a faculty position at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. But we can't take an animal that wasn't freeze tolerant and inject this stuff and make them freeze tolerant. Interesting. So there's other stuff going on. There's stuff associated with um, protecting the cytoskeleton, there's stuff associated with 
changing the way that the the organism the organisms like phospholipid membranes respond to freezing. There's got to be protective stuff, making sure that the mitochondria still work. Um, if you've frozen and therefore dehydrated most of your cells, how do you then get all of the iron balance and stuff working okay in your um, nerves, nervous system? I mean, there's so much going on when an insect is freeze tolerant. There's so many processes going on simultaneously. And so you have to figure out all those mechanisms mechanistic parts in order to make it. I know. So yeah. So it's like really like kind of, you know, the, yeah, like, you know, the world is our oyster in terms of like where to go with this, you know, like we had a little session just in a lab meeting. We were like, Oh, you know, let's like write down all the the experiments we think we, we think we should do. (laughs) And, you know, and we fill the whiteboard very easily. And it's actually that one of the things I do is I talk at conferences sort of saying like, Hey, here's this model. Like, you know, it's this cool thing that we can study this, you know, let me know if you want some things, you know, trying to build it up as a model. And one of my yeah. slides sort of says like, I know that there are a bazillion other experiments we could be doing on this. Please don't ask me because we've probably thought of them. We just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to like raise your hand and ask a question. Have you guys thought of doing yada yada oh, totally. after I, I talk? Yeah. And it's just like, and it's like, because there's one of me. <laughs> Yeah. I want to briefly just ask, you know, what are your, some skills or personal qualities or general philosophies in life that's made you successful? Am I successful? Apparently, sometimes I'm perpetually <laughs> astonished by this when I go to conferences and I'm apparently the old dude that like remembers all of the names of people that cite that are long retired and that sort of thing. Um, so for me, and this is, and, and, to some extent I've fallen on my feet in a system that rewards the kind of person I am in terms of being able to just kind of follow my nose a little bit with NSERC funding and things like that. Um, I don't think I would have done as well in the U S system where you're really kind of singing for your supper, writing these kind of super focused grants and things like I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I would have ever have written a good NSF grant to be, to be honest. I probably wow. would have eventually gotten funded because a program officer somewhere felt sorry for me. Um, <laughs> um so for me, I think the, the key thing, so there's a couple of things. So um, I think figuring out what it is that you enjoy doing. So in my case, um, the world is probably a safer place because I'm not in the lab every day with my sleeves rolled up doing science. <laughs> um, because I like writing. I like helping people figure out how to write. I like help, help mm. people think through their projects. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm intellectually extremely hands-on in that I really want to know everything that's going on, but I'm, I'm practically quite hands-off. And I'm comfortable with that. I have colleagues that would just hate that. They just mm. hate it, hate it, hate it, right? Um, I'm fairly extroverted and gregarious, which helps, but is not a prerequisite. I want to kind of make that clear. Um, yeah. But where it does help is that I end up knowing a lot of people, hanging out with a bunch of people at conferences and things. And that has allowed me to be a little bit of a kind of a, a nexus for the community that I kind of help people get together, act as a little bit of a matchmaker for students and projects and experts and things like that. And so that I think has helped me become known possibly above the, the, the pay scale of the quality of my publications. Hmm. Um, and I think the other, th- well, yeah. And the other thing is like enjoying writing at, in all its sort of facets, right? Because really we're professional writers 
who happen to do a bit of science on the side. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm starting to learn anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so from my perspective, you know, and, and, and I think that goes as far as even writing grants. My advice to my students when they get jobs and they're like writing so many grants, all of them fail. This is miserable. I hate writing grants. Is that the beauty about writing a grant is that um, everything is possible at the point where you write the grant, right? You know, you don't have any annoying like data in the way, you know, you haven't had like, you know, you haven't had a student quit and go off and join the circus midway through the project. You know, you haven't like, you know, you, you haven't had a, a pandemic come in and kill your field season. Gosh, um, yeah. And so I think you have to treat um, grant writing as a, an intellectual and collegial pursuit. Hmm. You know, um, I have a grant right now with a colleague, Thomas Buckley in New Zealand, and that grant got rejected six times between the previous grant and the one that we're on now, right? Wow. And at one point, we were just kind of like, we were chatting on Skype, and we're like, why are we doing this again? And, <laughs> and we concluded, the reason was that it was actually really fun to spend like kind of, you know, three weeks a year tossing ideas around and coming up with some like wild thing that we thought would answer some important question. And huh. whether or not, whether or not you get the money is, you know, and, and I'm speaking from the position of privilege of having a job, you know, having yeah. a full-time permanent position where I'm not required to produce <laughs> any of my salary from, from grant funding. Right. But, um, you know, it, it's sort of in some ways, like it's, it's only one step removed from what professional philosophers do for a living. Right. It's kind of like, <laughs> Throw, throw ideas around and stuff. And so it's an immense privilege to be able to do that and, and kind of, I think, enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, so those are, those are my things. I think be yeah. curious, you know, be nice to people as much as you can. Um, worry, you know, worry a little bit about what you're doing. You know, we, one of our philosophies is that just everything that leaves the lab is in the best shape we can possibly make it, mm. you know, it may get to the referees and they'll tell us it's crap, but it's not because we didn't put everything into it and be happy with whatever successes you get. Like it's just as exciting. You know, I am just as excited about a short note in the Canadian entomologist as I am about, you know, a paper that I was going to say as, as a paper in science, but that has never happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a bit of a gap. That's <laughs> yeah. As I am with a paper and like, you know, a solid journal where we, where we do publish because, you know, because, we put our best effort into it and it was a, you know, we thought it was worth doing and we think that other people should hear about it. So, you know, you know, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy and you know, this is just another zoom meeting you have to sit in on. So I really do appreciate it. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for, thanks for thinking of me. This is a really cool endeavor. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch and uh, the best to you. Cheers. See you later. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye.